Sapiens Talk Back, a podcast series brought to you by the Archaeology Centers Coalition and Radio Science at the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. This series has been developed in partnership with season four of the Sapiens podcast in order to discuss new approaches to changing archaeology stories and who tells them. Our goal is to dig deeper into the pressing issues that the Sapiens series raises for the practice of archaeology. My name is Anna Fancher-Whittemore, and I am a PhD student in the Department of Anthropology at Cornell and a member of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. And I'm Alex Simons, a PhD student in anthropology at Cornell and also a member of the Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. In this episode, we continue the discussion that began in episode five of season four of the Sapiens podcast, a conversation that examines how archaeologists study sacred sites and when they don't. We have two special guests with us today. Ora Merrick Martinez is Assistant Professor of Anthropology at Northern Arizona University and Director of the Office of Native American Initiatives. She is also co-host of the Sapiens podcast this season. Welcome to Sapiens Talk Back, Professor Merrick Martinez. Thank you, Anna. Very happy to be here. Joining us as well is Professor Nicholas Lalloch, Assistant Professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome, Professor Lalak. Thank you, Alex. Uh, Very happy to be here as well and looking forward to the conversation. We are very pleased to be joined today by an international panel of graduate students that will help guide our conversation. They will introduce themselves in the course of our discussion. In addition to probing the issues raised in episode five of the Sapiens series, we will also be discussing insights provided by two recent publications, Professor Lalak's 2017 article in the Journal of Social Archaeology entitled The Indivisibility of Land and Mind, Indigenous Knowledge and Collaborative Archaeology Within Apache Contexts, and a second piece by Professor Lalak and Benrita Burnett entitled We Know Who We Are and What is Needed, Achieving Healing Harmony and Balance in Indie Institutions that appeared in last year's uh, in Advances in Archaeological Practice. Let me start the conversation with a question that is open to both of you, though it was inspired by Dr. Lalek's 2017 article on land and mind in the Journal of Social Archaeology. Do you find that your work at holy sites enriches your own personal relationship with these places? Or do you find that dealing with the bureaucracy and the politics surrounding them makes it more difficult to find those experiences of connection? I was really interested in the concept of a holy site and what that means to you in your work. Yeah, thank you for that question. So connections are are really integral to how I I move forward with my work with um, sacred sites and, and holy site protection. And I think it's it's critical and necessary to have that that connection to to place in a lot of ways. And you know, with us as Apache people and dead people, this comes from you know since time immemorial, handed down by our Creator. And it's something that that drives us as Indian people to, you know, do what's right for, you know, not only our ourselves, our families, and our community, but the, the world as a whole. And I think that's what's so important about, you know, protecting these places in a lot of ways is it's not just about, you know, the individual or the individual tribe. It's about kind of protecting these places for the future and for everyone uh, that's a part of this world and the generations that come basically as well. So I think these connections are just there in a lot of ways. They're inherent. Uh, it's something I think it's hard to explain sometimes as an indigenous researcher. You grow up and it's just such a part of your indigeneity, your blood, your identity, your culture, that sometimes even when I'm teaching, it's, it's hard to convey. And I think sometimes uh, when I was at NAU, uh, it was really great because I was really close to my community there in, in um, White Mountain from Flagstaff to White Mountain is not too far. And I could bring students out pretty easily, kind of show them what I'm talking about, kind of give them that the vision in, in their head to, to see what was actually going on and try to convey it in that kind of way. And so that was kind of easy. It's a little bit more difficult to do out here in California because I'm a little farther away, but I still try to, to show my connections in various ways. And so with sacred site stuff, you know, I'm involved with some of the Oak Flat stuff and I've had ceremony there as well too. And, you know, just showing, you know, and allowing folks to come and visit these places is, is so powerful in a lot of ways. And folks can experience these things on their own and they can bring things to life in their own mindsets and see how 
important these places are and how there's such a critical need to protect them. When you watch a girl, you know, becoming a woman, an Apache girl, and how she's so focused and she is basically a deity and you can see that in her eyes and you know the palm that's applied the whole interaction with you know everybody else around her just praying for her and trying to get her to that level of you know being a woman is is just something that you can't really explain so in Arizona especially when you visit these sacred places you have to try to visit them during these times as well too where where you know sometimes ceremony is not allowed for outsiders to come into but some things like you know not yes dances uh like that are are pretty open to the public sometimes and you know just it's folks need to come see these things for themselves now the bureaucracy that's a hard thing to to negotiate too as well because you know working for the forest service for for as long as i did that was really frustrating as I, i've talked about before and it's 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 so hard to to be from a community and then be going up to Mount Graham on everyday basis and doing work that's, you know, is for the forest service, but they talk a lot about collaboration or consultation, but, you know, it doesn't mean anything if you don't put it into practice in a lot of ways. And, you know, for once, you know, it'd be nice to see sometimes that Apache folks get exactly what they wanted and what they're asking for, instead of just, you know, trying to make something up that really kind of doesn't hit full scale as to what you know Indian folks are asking for in terms of moving forward to build that healing and 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 that balance in the army that I'm talking about to to at least somehow try to get that place back to how it was before before certain things like telescopes are put on them or uh, mine international mining company is going to destroy an area those types of things so yeah, it's, it's so hard for me to explain connections. I mean, like I said, they're they're inherent and it's difficult process to negotiate in, in different ways. And, you know, I, but it's a feeling you get a lot of times. And I, I do this, I've experienced this a lot with my elders too. It's something that when you visit with them, the stories just kind of start coming again. And even though you think of, you know, with Apache folks not being able to go certain places anymore due to boundaries and restrictions these days, that kind of curtailed them from traditional lands. But when you go out and you do interviews and ethnography with some of these folks and you see, you know, the beauty of that and how powerful these stories are and, and how, you know, the land and the mind, like going back to that concept of Nia I discussed in the 2017 piece, it's all there. And as an, uh, still, I consider myself, you know, young still in a sense of in my terms of learning and always learning and trying to, you know, just hang out with my elders and extract as much as I can from them is really critical for me. And so just, you know, doing that all the time is something that really instills that sense of place within me and really drives my, I think, want to protect these places in the ways that I feel like my community wants. Yeah, Anna, I think that is a really, really great question. Um, and before I begin, I, I just want to honor the traditional landowners and land users of the area that I'm on. Um, uh, I am on the, the lens of the um, San Francisco Peaks, or as it's known in my language, the Navajo language, Kenfane. And so I just want to honor our ancestors, our, our current connections, and our future generations as well. And really, you know, my work as an archaeologist is rooted in, in my cultural sacred responsibility as a woman and as a mother, as an auntie. And by that, I mean in, in growing up in my community on, in Lapway, Idaho, I was taught what it meant to be a part of a community. I was also taught about my, re, my relationship with the community and, and with the landscape. And, and for me, it was a connection to our ancestors and it was a way for us to learn about our history, about who we are, but also Really, it gave us that sense of hope and, and the ability to dream about a future. And for me, you know, in, in working with these holy places, the, the cultural landscape, because for, for us as a lot of in as indigenous peoples, our landscapes, our homelands are unbounded, right? And this idea of boundaries or or you know that we have access to certain places is completely antithetical to who we are and to our beliefs. And so in the work that I've done as the, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Navajo Nation, for example, it was literally 
fighting and advocating for our cultural landscape, our Denefikea, our Navajo lands. And, you know, it was a very sort of trying and bittersweet kind of learning journey because there were, in, in, in my in Navajo culture, I learned so much about what our lands mean and that our identity as, as indigenous peoples is really rooted in the landscape. And so archeology span then is a very sort of sacred endeavor. And you have to recognize that when you're going into these landscapes that some of these archeological practices that are traditional practices within the Western sort of academy are again, antithetical and are destructive and, and disrespectful to our ancestors but it also causes tensions and, and these sort of imbalances in our communities. And so when we, when we as indigenous peoples as well, our, our archeologists, there's a sense of, you know, we have to find that balance. And, and for me, I learned so much from, from elders and from our cultural knowledge and our traditional knowledge holders about what the landscape means and, and how to be respectful, how to engage with the landscape through songs and prayers and offerings. And so I would say that in my work as an archeologist, I my own personal cultural knowledge has been increased and, and I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity to be able to learn about our histories because for, again, for a lot of us, our histories are also sacred stories. They're ceremonial histories. And so it takes a certain kind of knowledge to be able to understand what the landscape means. And, you know, when you're an archeologist, it's, it's very eye-opening because you have an eye on all of these other kinds of, um, a, a different kind of modality of thinking about the landscape. And then you have this amazing, centuries, thousands of years old of, of knowledge that has helped your people survive and live to this very day, right? And so for me, it's been very enriching. It's been a very enriching experience. Abu, I want to ask Orisha, my ancestors and my elders for permission before I speak. Uh, I am Gabi Omoni Hartiman. I am Afro-Guyanese and I'm Omo Orisha, which means I am a member of a traditional African diasporic community, uh, which is based in, the, in Amazonia. I'm also a PhD student in anthropology and archaeology at the Federal University of Minas Gerais in Brazil. And so I really want to thank you all for sharing this knowledge, feelings, and experiences. Um, it's really heartwarming to uh, get to be connected with, you know, elders who have opened those paths before us. And I feel like an essential part of colonialism and the ongoing violence that is caused, that it has caused for centuries, it lies in the modern Western attempt to destroy our worlds but specifically our world's perceptions and systems of knowledge, because it is through them, the systems of knowledge and world perceptions that we can actually rebuild what seems to have been broken by colonialism. And so I feel like it's really an ontological war. It's an attempt to destroy our way of existing. And so it's an attempt to annihilate the connections that we have nourished for generations with multiple visible and invisible beings, places, things. And to me, it was heartbreaking, uh, but absolutely no surprising to hear about this co-participation of institutions of Euro-Western knowledge and religious dogma in the attack of sacred places, such as Ntsil sorry for my pronunciation of ND language. Um, but I understand that this really typically and sadly points to the crucial place that occupies what has been translated in those Western languages as spirituality, which actually refers to our knowledge about the multiple connections that we have nourished with the universe and all the beings in the universe. And so, and those connections I feel are what is dangerous for this colonial order. And so I wanted to hear about your experiences around navigating the place that this spiritual knowledge, what is translated about spiritual knowledge and connections occupy in your way of understanding and designing archaeological research. 
Thank you for, for that question. You know, I, I think you've done a very amazing job at articulating this sort of disconnection and this disruption of our ancestral knowledge. It's been a very deliberate approach um, by Western colonialism within the United States to disrupt and, and to dismantle who we are as Indigenous people, right? And, and we see this very insidiously, I think, through, through archaeology and anthropology in, in the very inception of our field here in the United States and how Indigenous peoples were described and, and analyzed and categorized and ranked um, and ordered, right? And, and in we, if we think about how that process has happened, we see that our knowledge has been sort of commodified, but also simplified in ways that it have been, again, it, this is a very insidious process because it's, it's created this sort of self-colonization within our own people and in trying to keep up with the sort of anthropological definitions of who we are. And so this idea that Native American people are disappearing, for example, that we are losing our connections, for example, those are all very, those are perpetuated through this colonial mindset. And, and I say that because in, in, again, in these early days of anthropology and archaeology, everything about us was categorized and fit nicely into these anthropological and archaeological domains, so much so that we were unrecognizable to ourselves, right? And so that knowledge was fed back to us and, and in a way that it created this false sense that if we were not practicing in those ways that those anthropologists and archeologists observed or, or recorded and documented at those times, then we were somehow not as, as native or as indigenous as our ancestors. And that in and of itself has, has created this sense even within ourselves of us not being connected, of us losing who we are. And, and one of the great things I think about archeology span for me has been the ability to utilize my own cultural education as, as again, as a woman, as a mother, as, as a Nimipu, as a Dene, like a member of these different tribal nations. And it's allowed me to create these, this sort of framework so that I understand and can utilize the foundational laws, the traditional knowledge, the ancestral knowledge that was handed down to us and utilizing our own protocols, right? Our, our songs, our prayers, our offerings, all of these things in a way that has helped our people to understand and to learn about the past and, and really to reveal these things that these aspects about their history that you know they really needed to learn or they really needed to, I guess it was something that needed to grow. I heard this really great um, articulation of this and, and um, from Australian scholars and, and um, indigenous peoples where they said that their ancestors realized that their way of life was at such a threat and under threat that they decided very consciously to hide that and to bury that knowledge. And with the intention that future generations would be able to grow and tend to those seeds so that all of that cultural knowledge would grow again. And so in thinking about how archaeology has, has helped me, it, it's really been able to help my communities connect to their, their histories and to their pasts in a way that is, is really helping us understand and reclaim a lot of these knowledges and these ways. And so archaeology has been a tool for us to reclaim and to rematriate a lot of our ways of life and, and our life worlds and that sort of knowledge that's associated with that. And so um, that's how archaeology has helped me. Yes. Um, you know, this is a question I've, I've, I, I negotiate with a lot and, and I think about a lot from, from where I come from. And for me, it's hard sometimes. Things are so sensitive that come out of a lot of indigenous knowledge systems, whether it be ceremony or prayer. And I respect that as much as I can as an Indian person. And I go to my elders for, you know, guidance all the time and, and how I move forward with applying 
certain types of, you know, epistemologies, ontologies from my own community that I think help tell a better narrative and work against that dominant narrative that wrote for so long by, you know, non-Indigenous folks about ourselves. And it's, it's, it's really difficult for me as a, uh, you know, when we go to these grad programs, a lot of Indigenous folks, and we're sometimes maybe the one of a handful or one or two grad students in these programs. And we feel, you know, that sometimes our, our, our thoughts don't get heard sometimes, or we don't have a community there to, to base ourselves off and, and hearing us in the right ways in terms of what we're experiencing in the, the, the archaeological world. And so I think that forces us sometimes to go outside of ourselves in a lot of ways, you know, being taught these Western forms of method, theory, and practice is so ingrained in grad school. And then you come out and you're thinking, oh, I have to just always kind of use this kind of knowledge or I've been trained with to, you know, tell this type of story. But, you know, you, you're always part of your own identity in, in school as well, too. And I think that's you're made to do that in a lot of what I'm trying to get at in terms of what you're trying to write up in a dissertation or something like that. They make you utilize that knowledge you've learned rather than drawing from your own institutional knowledge as an Indigenous person. And so you have to always maintain and be adamant about your own kind of methodology and the ways that you want to apply yourself as a researcher for in the future and, and what you're doing. And so you know, that's what's so important in that piece I, I did in 2017, because I was really frustrated with, you know, theory, and I didn't know what, what the hell am I going to apply? This doesn't work, and I don't want it to, to apply this to my own research, and, you know, that's why it's that statement by some of the Apache elders in terms of, well, just, you know, write down what we tell you is so powerful, because that shows, you know, a, a sovereignty right there. It, it, it sets it up where I can talk about my own systems, that I'm given guidance by my elders to be allowed to say what I need to say and tell my history in the ways I need to tell it rather than kind of just trying to draw parallels or useful things that comport from Western knowledge. I can tell it as Apaches want me to. And that is theory in a lot of ways as well, too. And so I, I, I think, you know, we have to think about these things really deeply and critically and how we utilize our own indigenous knowledge systems and push those forward as an indigenous method, as indigenous theoretical stance or, you know, a standpoint basically. And so how do we keep on moving those conversations forward in those realms? And, you know, I think Linda Tui Smith talks about this in various ways in terms of, you know, self-determination and, and, and naming and these types of things and how when you want to reclaim a space and how do you gain a space and maybe it's through some things like linguistic sovereignty or you know even terminolo terminological sovereignty i write about that a lot recently in my own work in terms of how do we get beyond these tropes or these stereotypes in archaeology or even you know these terms that continue to define us and we have to draw from our own knowledge systems in a lot of ways and so when i work with elders it's so important for me to to talk with them through things and try to find the most appropriate ways to move forward with uh, a method that I'm utilizing. And a case in point um, is I was actually doing a ethnographic project recently, and I was interviewing an elder that I, dear friend, a uh, host clan member of mine, I've talked to for a long time. Uh, it's actually been Rita Burnett from the other piece you guys read. But uh, she, we were sitting there at Fort Apache, we're talking, and I'm asking some questions based on my own research and about ontology, epistemology, whatnot. And she just kind of stops me and she's like, Nick, wait. And she's like, you see the grass? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, what is it doing? And well, I don't know. And she's like, well, it's waving at you. Maybe it's trying to tell you something. Maybe that's its music. And think about it. Every time you, talk, you stop talking, it, it, it blows and the wind blows it and it's saying something to you. And then she goes on to talk about how, you know, the owl has his own music and talking about death and avoidance in our own culture and how the crickets when they chirp and how that, you know, allows us in our own Apache worldviews to the right time to go harvest acorns. But when they stop their music and that's when it's time to, you know, not collect acorn anymore. So you sit there and think of as a researcher, how I'm drawing indigenous knowledge from my own community members and you know that's a learning experience right there i mean it's going back to basic pragmatics i think and 
and rational-based, experience-based reasoning that we have to call upon. And I think Usma Rizvi talks about this a lot in terms of you just got to pause sometimes and think about it and critically reflect as research. And that's why we don't do enough when we're trying to tap into these certain systems or utilize these to move forward. Uh, maybe we're so quick to publish or something like that, but we really just got to sit there and listen and learn and talk through things in a lot of ways. And that's where, you know, we can get to this knowledge and how we kind of, how do we, we push these systems forward as indigenous, indigenized kind of knowledge-based systems in a lot of ways. And I, just so that, that story, I think is really important to that because it forces me as a researcher to do that in my own right, right? I'm learning from my elders. I'm getting knowledge from my elders. And she's telling me to wait, go back to your own identity, Nick. Go back to how you are as an Apache. Think about things slowly. Look at the grass, you know, look at the world, you know, think about the crickets, think about, you know, all this, but all this stuff ties into the social and moral conceptions of who I am as an Apache person. So that right there, that, that story was loaded with so much information in terms of how I need to move forward as my own, in my own indigenous research too. This is such a rich conversation. I'm Eric. I'm a third year PhD student at Columbia, uh, which rests on traditional lands of the Lenape people. Uh, thanks to uh, Cornell for inviting me to be part of the conversation. I have a question that um, relates in a sense to what Dr. Uh, Lalik was just mentioning, ideas about different uh, epistemologies and um, different conventions that we, that we study or that we uh, learn from. Um, I really found such a resonance with some of the work that I'm currently focusing on in relation to the ecology and human interaction with it in South America. I'm a pre-Columbianist, so I, I study the, the art um, and the material culture of the indigenous Americas before European invasion. We know in pre-Columbian studies that uh, indigenous concepts of time and or space were very much more complex than we consider those same concepts. For example, the Inca thought of their landscape as harboring animate entities that were made manifest in stones or natural features. In contemporary communities in South America, the mountains are considered to be animate and are given human-like agencies and can affect outcomes in the real world. My question relates to the concept of me, which means both land and mind, and how we can move toward teaching this concept to younger generations in college environments. What do you think the best practice is for getting students to become aware of the distinctions manifest in me? In my own personal experience, learning about these similar types of concepts in South America has been rather haphazard, and a lot of the learning process has been self-driven. In my experience, it's also been pretty rare that um, this stuff gets taught at the undergraduate level as opposed to the graduate. In other words, what pedagogical structures could you give to this highly non-structured concept? Yeah, thank you for the, the question about um, Nia and on ontology. And I think it's really important and, and how we convey this knowledge to, to students and, and even the general public in a lot of ways, because there's always that disconnect a lot of times and how I think different knowledge systems come across and there's always something gets lost in translation. And, uh, but it's, for me, it's been hard to, you know, like you say, haphazard, it's been difficult to, to, to show folks what this kind of means sometimes in my own identity and my own community kind of relations as well, too. And so I try to start at kind of the most basic levels in a lot of ways. Okay, think about, you know, the land, think about where you're from and how your own kind of thought process is tied back to where you're from and how that might drive you as your own, a researcher or what you want to do with your own, you know, tools as a researcher for, for, for the future. And I think just breaking that down even to your own community and recognizing that, you know, when you're going to work with, you know, a community, there's a community out there beyond that, that's the environment in a lot of ways. And how do you interact and relate to that as well too? And so, and it's, it's full scale kind of indigenization of, concepts and and terms that we need to do you know, the physical the political the social the religious and ongoing but you know if we can continue to 
look to ontology to really better inform ways of doing things like that and getting folks to know that it's not just at the superficial level. I try to write that, write about that in, in certain times, how, how do we get beyond just, you know, basic levels of understanding of things like respect, you know, how do we, you know, look at the deeper meanings of respect for indigenous cultures through, you know, maybe a person who is delegated to give a certain prayer before an archaeological project or something like that. And the deeper meaning of the words that he is saying and how that ties back to community well-being and the land and the past and how we care for our ancestors. There's this whole other component there I think we're missing sometimes from these different knowledge systems. And so that's why me is so important. And I use it so much in my own research because that's how I think. And that's how a lot of Indian folks think still. But teaching, it's, you know, difficult. You, 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 so when I was in school, I had difficulties, you know, getting to that knowledge. I had to go outside of you know, the department sometimes, the American Indian Studies, or uh, even the law school took classes in federal Indian law to really kind of get that knowledge I was seeking and bring it back into how I was negotiating that anthropological degree I was working on. And so, but, you know, even that in a sense, you're, 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 um, you're getting stuff like Deloria and, you know, I'm a big fan of, you know, Wildcats work as well too on space and place, but these types of things, you know, when you introduce them in your own classes, that's, that's really necessary. So you got to go against the grain in the ways you want to. So my theory, for my theory class, for an example, at NAU, I taught the grad theory class when I was there. And, you know, I didn't want to teach just the basic underpinnings of, you know, culture, history and processual and post-processual archaeology. I wanted to move into, you know, activism and decolonization. So I, I straight up tell my students, I'm teaching this class with a decolonial angle. And that's how I'm going to do it, because that's what we need to do. And so in that sense, I move forward with, you know, the first couple of weeks of just, you know, talking about, you know, thing, archaeology and relationships with indigenous folks and a lot of times contentious of course but and then you know sometimes i even question you know why do i still have to teach some of the stuff that i'm teaching in theory uh i know it's you know we got to learn certain things but you know there's there's so much you know knowledge out there that we need to be focusing on especially these days with you know with stuff like holy sites and sacred sites and and nagpra and you know just you know how we're trying to be more inclusive and multivocal with research and you know we're still extracting so much from indigenous communities, but not using their own knowledge systems for allowing them to tell their stories. And so I try to do that as much as I can in, in, in my classes to introduce, you know, literature from, you know, maybe Native American studies, the IAS, those types of things as well, too, that folks might not get that chance to read. So they can start that thinking in terms, okay, well, you know, maybe environmental justice, you know, how does that tie back to my own research as well, too? Or, you know, things like food sovereignty, how does that tie back to my own research? As long as they're, they're thinking about it, that's good for me. And so they can better kind of approach things like me when, when they're out there in the field and say, okay, it's a cool concept. I think, you know, I, I, I need to push, use this and, you know, talk to folks to see how I can best, you know, tie it into my own research in ways that make sense to, to them and benefits them directly in a lot of ways. So yeah, it's, a, it's an ongoing cycle, though, I think, in terms of how we're, we're teaching these things to, to students. And uh, I'm trying, uh, but I think that's just a, a kind of a slow way, I guess. Um, I'm really just trying to move forward and that and open the doors for, you know, students getting to better understand and kind of feeling that bridging that often disconnect between ontological systems and, you know, working together in the field is so critical. I, I did a pilot based field school this past, uh, this past uh, summer. And it was uh, folks from White Mountain who were in our tribal historic preservation office working directly with some, you know, contract archaeology folks and some students from NAU. And that was just, you know, so enriching to me seeing that interaction and it was tribally driven. So it was, you know, I was the PI, you know, I was making the decisions. It wasn't somebody other university professor somewhere else. That was, you know, our sovereign land, me and the tip over there in the field making decisions about what needed to be done. And so, you know, and then seeing, you know, how folks were speaking the Apache language and how they were talking to each other and how, you know, the site was associated to, you know, the elders coming out there and, you know, the springs and the surrounding landscape and this whole kind of other way of looking at the world, the students got to see and hang out with folks like Mae Burnett out there and go look at the springs with her and see the process she does of caring for the land and talking about the past. Those types of things are really critical. So that place-based education uh, really can inform, I think, me as well too, get to, you know, pedagogy and teaching, I think. Eric, thank you for that question. I really great question. And I, I think that's actually one of, you've pinpointed one of the sort of tension points um, that we've been addressing in, in the newest season of Sapiens. 
and, and with the work of different indigenous and, and black archeologists and, and practitioners. And so I think actually Nick brought this up as, as a, for me, you know, when I first um, entered into my secondary education, I was extremely frustrated with archeological theory and, and the way it sort of captured indigenous peoples. And so I was very resolute in, in changing that and, and making sure that I was contributing to a very different sort of narrative and, and hoping to change things. And I didn't have the language to articulate that until I was able to um, read Linda Tuhiwe Smith's book in 1999, Decolonizing Methodologies. And that completely changed my life and, and gave me that language to, to be able to articulate my frustrations. And so as far as, you know, thinking about how can we blend this knowledge, how can we, you know, teach and, and utilize this knowledge, I think it has to begin with a paradigmatic shift um, by our larger Western research institutions. And I know that's a lot. And, and that's, that is exactly what we've been working on. Um, as Indigenous archaeologists, I think that's the legacy that we've really fought against is, is this legacy of colonialism and archaeology. And so in thinking about what does that look like for us in, in archaeology and anthropology, you know, it's, it's being able to value and accept Western knowledge systems and in life worlds, so epistemologies, ontologies, axiologies, as valid and, and as as ways of our pieces or I guess knowledge systems that that can enhance our knowledge and understanding of the past. And so, you know, in, in thinking about, you know, how can we we blend these or how can we braid these, you know, to borrow from Sonia Atale, um, how do we braid these knowledges? And, and one of the ways that I've I've found promise in is really coming out of Canada and research there with First Nation archeologists and, and education and public health researchers who are exploring these land-based pedagogies and being able to braid all of these different knowledge sources so that ancestral knowledge and, and different sort of health systems, anthropology and archeology span and, and really trying to enhance our understanding and, and our relationships with the land. But also, again, it, it values indigenous knowledge and, and life worlds and that is being articulated into these different kind of research projects. And it, it, it's provided just this wealth of knowledge to us. And so my hope in, in thinking about futurities and indigenous futurities, for example, is, is being able to teach the future generations of archeologists exactly about decolonization and these violent histories, colonial histories against indigenous and, and not only indigenous communities, but also black communities. I think it's very important to, to realize that there's, we have very similar experiences and it, it, it is through this larger sort of system machine of anthropology and archeology. span And so once we have an understanding of that and, and building from that foundation, I think it's it's we're able to to really begin that shift, that paradigmatic shift, so that we can articulate and be able to integrate and braid that knowledge. Um, and, and that way, again, we have an enhanced understanding of a very complex relationship in history. Thank you for this thought-provoking discussion. Uh, my name is Marianne Ragib. I'm a fourth-year PhD student at the Kosen Institute of Archaeology, UCLA. My question relates to the topic of colonialism and how it impacts indigenous populations through cultural assimilation and ingraining colonial ideologies and practices that are sort of inherited through generations. Do some members of the Apache communities believe in the merit of Western archeological methodologies and theories more than indigenous knowledge? And if so, how do we start a conversation with them to sort of decolonize ourselves and our practices? Yeah, thank you for that, that great question. Yeah, so finding merit in Western methodologies, it really depends who you're talking to. Uh, for me, trained as an archeologist for my tribe, or as a, I guess an, an anthropologist too, um, I draw from certain types of, of Western kind of methods, I think, and, and knowledge systems in my own work, of course, definitely. But, you know, other folks working in archaeology of Apacheria, I guess, uh, other colleagues that I know who are outside of my tribe for different Apache nations, you know, they've, they, they embrace, you know, 
certain types of Western knowledge and, and the ways they move forward that, you know, for us, you know, we sometimes we don't want to take photographs or we might not want to, you know, be invasive at all. We don't excavate anymore, really. I mean, unless we do damage assessment or something like that under the Archaeological Resource Protection Act. Uh, but our, our research out in the field is very, very minimal in terms of impacting the landscape. And the, there's good reasons for this because I think, you know, archaeology was a colonial endeavor in so many ways in the past. And the extraction of resources and ancestors from our lands was was really hurtful. And we still have the sociocultural effects from that going on that are really hurting our local communities in various ways until, you know, ancestors have a chance to come back. And we're slowly moving forward with those processes. But, you know, I know other Apache folks um, might, you know, do more different things than us. So uh, Mescalero Apache uh, Travel Store President Activation Office might, you know, do things a little differently than we do it. Or San Carlos might do things a little different than we do it as well, too. But we all kind of look at, I think, moving forward with our own and day values and belief systems and how we want to to do archaeology on our on our land bases and so but it's it's it's, it's such a tough question too because you know I'm just one researcher on my lands uh, for my community and you know I I do archaeology we have biologists we have you know medical doctors we have you know lawyers I mean we have fire folks doing you know fire ecology studies these types of things and so which is all kind of interrelated right to what I do as an archaeologist I see how my Apache upbringing and my knowledge kind of for what you know, Aura was saying and quoting Sonia Adelaide, that braiding of knowledge is always there. And for me to try to pick out, you know, and separate certain things is really hard in terms of you know these specialties were supposed to be in archaeology and other forms. And so I do work a lot with fire ecology too. And I know a lot of that is science-based. And you know, I'm actually getting more into that in here at, at Berkeley and trying to look at you know indigenous kind of landscapes managed by and how folks are reintroducing fire into the landscape as to you know, for, you know, enhanced growth or some, or for agriculture, those kind of purposes. But, you know, I find, you know, working with colleagues who are really, you know, about, you know, radiocarbon dating or, you know, looking at, you know, annuals and looking at the soils and sediments and kind of really the science-based kind of components of archaeology. I read through these possible co-authored papers and, and some of them just, you know, used certain terms like the Southwest was depopulated during this time. And this research is trying to prove that the Apaches might've been here during this, you know, 100, 200 year hiatus or something like that. But to me, <laughs> I look at it as kind of, you know, colonial in a sense, because I believe we were here since time immemorial. So how am I going to collaborate with you in a sense when I, I appreciate the work you're doing, it's good work, but at the same time, we need to rewrite this and rethink this in terms of the ways Native folks have persisted and maintained that association to that landscape rather than going against it in a sense. So I, in some ways, I know I don't, <laughs> I try not to associate myself with those types of research because I don't necessarily believe in it as a, as a researcher in that sense. I mean, I see the, the value in it, but putting my name on it, I don't somehow that politically and socially might have ramifications in the future as well too, in terms of land claims or something like that. Well, what if somebody in the future raises say, oh, Dr. Lalek said, you know, Apaches were depopulated from this area <laughs> during this hundred years. And so, you know, that's proof right there that's not important to Apaches. And so like, well, what the hell am I going to do now? So it's like, I have to, I have to really think about things when I, when I, when I go into learning different methodologies, different types of, you know, ways that you know, Western science. I mean, like I said, some things are useful. I think I we we utilized drone technology for the, the this past uh, field school, which the elders really liked too. They really were responsive to you know the maps and seeing how our sites were really mapped without even just touching the site, basically, or even you know XRF studies. You know, looking at mineral sourcing, those types of things. And I know elders are really into paint sometimes and how that kind of associates to springs and those types of things, and especially colors like the color yellow, the color black, you know, the color white certain sacred colors for our Apache nation and where do these mineral pigments come from? So XRF is something that, you know, possible some Apache folks are getting, you know, an interest in as well too, but for my own community at least. And so, yeah, so there's interest there. It's just working together and seeing, you know, what we want to do with this, this kind of knowledge and these kind of, these kind of ways and methods of, of doing things that might be, you know, not the way we look at the, with the, the past and the future as Apache folks. So although I'm not from the Apache community, I can speak to, you know, the, my experience with, with Navajo Nation. And I actually wrote my dissertation about this process and, and how do I create or, or actually how, how can I really actually create an archaeology or an archaeological approach that 
supports who the Navajo Nation people are and that integrates their knowledge knowledge systems into investigating the past. And so I started working for Navajo Nation when I was an undergrad and I was a student archaeologist. And so the Navajo Nation and the Navajo people's conception of archaeology is within the context of um, infrastructure development. And so because our tribal lands are considered federal trust lands, there are federal regulations that occur or that kick in anytime there's ground disturbing activities, for example. So um, in that case, that we have to comply with National Historic Preservation Act, National um, Environmental Policy Act. And so there are archeologists that have to go through to do the the survey, they have to do background check, they have to do ethnographic interviews with the local community um, and with traditional knowledge holders. And so those are four different processes that have to happen in order for anybody to stick a shovel in the ground on Navajo Nation, including building a home for yourself. And so in, in that context, archaeology is extremely important, but it is a very bureaucratic process. And our community has become very anti-archaeology because of the amount of time that it takes and the fact that for many years on Navajo Nation, a very processually based archaeological research paradigm sort of was was dominant and, and really guided all of the research. And so our Navajo community was really upset with the fact that all of this knowledge was being generated about our homelands without any input from our tribal people. Um, including elders and our other traditional knowledge holders. And so in that context, archaeology was very much a hindrance. It was something that we should not engage in at all. And then there, for our Navajo people, we don't have ceremonies to rebury or to to put our people back at rest again, because for our, our beliefs, once our people are interred, they remain that way. And so it's created a very, um, very contentious situation for us culturally to be able to manage when we go through these archaeological projects and there's excavation and then they just want to pull people out of our ancestors out of the ground and move them. And and so it presents these very interesting sort of tensions there. And, And so archaeology in that way is something that is just completely unnecessary and, and it, it takes money away from other expenditures and, and endeavors for our people. And so we've tried to create alternatives to the way that we conduct archeology. span um, And that's only been within, I would say the last 10 years of the Navajo Nation. And we've been, we've been doing research on our lands for hundreds of years and, and really since the establishment of our tribal nation. And so, you know, you think about that history and, and especially for our communities, it's something that is very anti-cultural. And so we have to take that into consideration in, in how we present archeology span and how we engage with the public. And each community is different. And so each community wants different tools and, and methods to be utilized. And so that's another, you know, sort of thing or, or you know, consideration that we have to incorporate in doing this work. And so, I mean, we always actually, I think a really great example is Dr. Sarah Gonzalez's work at University of Washington and the work that she's done through her Indigenous Archaeology's um, field school program and and just seeing how she's worked with tribes in, in the, you know, in California and the Pacific Northwest has been really amazing in and really helping those tribes with what they need and what they are requesting. And so I would really, you know, for me, that's really sort of the mitigation is, is kind of finding that balance and that middle point. Hi, this is Alex again, and thank you all for this fascinating conversation. Dr. Lalak, you talk in the Sapiens podcast about the power of students and their activism. Uh, I'm always struck by the diversity of perspectives that my students bring to the table. Uh, No two have the same starting assumptions about archaeology. I'd like to ask both of you, have you noticed a change in your time in archaeology in students' starting assumptions or their background knowledge? Have students become more open to Indigenous ways of knowing the past, or have they always been ready to think about the past in new ways? No, I've actually been involved in archaeology for at least 20, maybe close to 25 years. And so shifting from being a student and and 
one of the very few Native American students in, in all of my programs, there has been a, a shift. And, you know, it, I, I really feel that it's been a generational shift as well um, in, in appreciating and, and being open to integrating indigenous philosophies and, and knowledge systems into anthropology and archeology. span And, you know, in, in teaching in the past, you know, oh my gosh, six years now, I have definitely seen a shift. It was, at first there was a little bit of, you know, why do I need to learn this? I don't understand this is, this doesn't, this doesn't impact me in any way. And so I think it was also an institutional shift because our institution, we recently made that a requirement, our indigenous perspectives and in, in anthropology, a, a required class for our majors. And so once we implemented that shift, we, we saw a shift in our students of, of starting to question some of the other readings and, and the way that they engage with archaeology and anthropology and thinking about indigenous perspectives and learning about the indigenous research paradigm, for example. And so it's, it's really amazing to me to see these spaces being made for indigenous and other ways of knowing um, about the past and investigating the past, other ways of relating to the past that have been creative, that have been uh, generative and, and transformative and that are also healing. And so I, I think because again of this generational shift, we are moving into a new era of the way that we engage with anthropology and archeology span and, and of other ways of knowing that is very hopeful for me as an indigenous person, but also as an archeologist. And so I'm really interested in seeing how these next generations decide to make their mark and, and what legacy they decide to leave with, within our discipline and, and really being able to decolonize and, and unpack a lot of our discipline's sort of dirty history. And so that's you know something that I've worked at for, for all of the time that I've been in the field. And so I am also now passing that responsibility over to you all as, as future anthropologists, archaeologists, and practitioners, and, and challenge you to do that work and, you know, in, in making sure that we are unpacking these legacies and histories and making headway and, and creating these collective futurities for ourselves. So you all can do it. You're our future. You're our hope. <laughs> yeah. So students and activism and knowledge and how are we seeing a shift yeah, just like Aura saying, being a, a student in, in grad school and dealing with the, I guess, the lack of resources across the board in terms of even funding. And, you know, at the time, my research was too, I think, too humanistic for certain things like NSF. And, you know, I did a lot of collaboration and, you know, a lot of my fellow students were getting funded for their big geo art projects or, you know, projects focused more on ceramics and those types of things or sourcing and you know I felt kind of left out I was like okay well where, where's where's my pot at? I need to do my research too and so but you know, I think that's something that's changing too you know in terms of programs looking to fund projects that are more collaborative in a sense and and, and more indigenous kind of motivated in a lot of ways and I think that's really important to to nurture and care for students projects in that sense as well too at that level of equality right and then you know, I didn't get, like I said before, I didn't get a lot of the literature I think I was needing in classes there at, at a, where I went to school in terms of what I do now and where I thought my trajectory was going. As an archaeologist, I mean, barely read any Deloria. And like Aura says, you know, Linda 2Y Smith was kind of mind-blowing for me reading that. I was like, wow, this is all the stuff I'm, I'm thinking about. And she wrote it down in this really cool way. And it's, that's inspiring to me still is in a lot of ways. And I think texts like that continue to inspire this generation of, of folks moving these conversations forward in really effective and creative ways. And, you know, some social movements too, recently, around the world and in this country, um, even no dapple, uh, you know, folks, you know, kind of banded together in certain ways. And I think, you know, a lot of interest came from, you know, okay, well, let's, let's learn more about, you know, the indigenous cultures and why, you know, this is probably not good to put this pipeline here from their perspective, right? And so 
And that's, those are things we got to teach in classes too. And so I think not only teaching archaeology to students, but allowing ourselves to teach other things. And so I think when I co-taught a class with uh, Aura and Dr. Thompson about um, healing and those types of things. And, you know, we introduced literature in that class. I mean, it wasn't archaeology based, but class, but it was students who were in anthropology and they were getting I thought a well-rounded background in the way we were presenting the material. And, you know, it was a lot of really great discussions and interests that were going on in that class. And, you know, we were talking about activism, you know, just, you know, this, the, the seven forms of healing, I believe it was. And then all these different, uh, that, that these, um, two, uh, indigenous, um, folks who do a lot of wellness, uh, kind of talk about a lot when they, when they give their, their, their talks. And so these types of things, really helping us get the word out and show folks that, you know, there is really interesting ways to, to talk about these things from indigenous perspectives. And so even with my classes here, I, I try to talk about Oak Flat as much as I can, because that's such a part of me. It's such a part of my community and what we're trying to do to, to, to fight this international mining company. And, you know, I, I need to let students know what's going on with that. And why is that important? And, you know, maybe some students will say, okay, that's really interesting. I, I need to start looking more into that. And so, but it's, you know, as educators, it's, it's about us, you know, just strategically, I think you to changing the way courses are taught in those types of ways too. And so utilizing videos or podcasts, even to, to tell that story too, is really a powerful form of, of media in a sense, because, you know, I didn't, when I was going to school, I didn't have much of that. And so in terms of the podcast and, you know, all the great stuff that's coming out right now. And so allowing students having an assignment, say, oh, go listen to that. And then we'll talk about it. I think that gives them more appreciation. They can do that on their own too, which is really great about things. And so I think these types of things are, are much needed in terms of the way we, we let this kind of activism and kind of the ways we challenge the narratives of colonialism and those types of things, the ways we decolonize discipline moving forward. I keep having this in the back of my mind, this thought, this experience I went through recently. Uh, so going back to essentialisms and stereotypes in a sense and speculations about indigenous cultures. I was in the field a number of years ago when I first, uh, when I came back to be the deputy tempo for my, my tribe. And we were doing a project out in, the, in this area where there's a lot of ancestral Pueblo sites and a contract company came up from from uh, the valley. And so it was me and the Tippo walking around out there first. We met them out there. I didn't meet, I didn't know any of them really. And uh, we started looking around and that was my job. I'm deputy Tippo. I'm supposed to be out there. It's my land base. And it was funny. There's this elder lady who was from the, the company. She comes up to me and says, Hey, what's your name? And I was like, Oh, um, Nick. And she's like, why don't you go over there and learn something? And I was like, okay. I mean, <laughs> why don't you come over with me? He can learn something, you know? So it's like, so she didn't really know who I, I was in a sense too. And so that, that speculation, that essentialism right there is really something that kind of, I think we, we still experience in the field as indigenous archaeologists sometimes. And then fast forward to last year, that same woman was at the, the, the field site with us and, you know, we get along pretty well, um, joke around, stuff like that, talk, but it was interesting because, you know, our guys, where our crew from our Chippo office were learning some of this um, basic archaeological skill sets. And they're, I think they were shifting some of the dirt, sifting some of the dirt from one of the units uh, that we were, we were using damage testing at. And uh, she came up to me like really quietly and, and just kind of say, wow, Nick, they're really getting it. And I was like, well, why is it hard to get? I mean, they're only, we're just, you know, why can't they get? I mean, there's, this, I think there's, there's something there that's a deeper stereotype that's ingrained in essentialism that we some folks that are trained in that mentality need to show that you know there's a way to approach archaeology that is more associated it goes back to that recent publication archaeology of the heart right you know with care and respect and communication first of all and kind of getting beyond you know how we perceive indigenous folks to be and because you know we might have not have seen a lot of indigenous folks, you know, in archaeology in the past, and you know, looked at more as specimens and actual humans, right? And so, so I think it goes back to like ethics and those types of things, I think, as well, too, and how we engage one another in the field. And, you know, so we don't have to go through these kind of issues in, in real time sometimes when we're out there and just all trying to work together collaboratively to do something and not having thoughts of why why am I getting asked that question, you know, in a sense too. So just a side note, but I think it's important. Yeah, definitely. Thank you. There's so much more for us to discuss, but unfortunately that will have to be the last word for this episode of Sapiens Talk Back. Professor Merrick Martinez and Professor Lalek, thank you so much for this thoughtful and thought-provoking discussion. 
Sapiens Talkback was developed in collaboration with the Indigenous Archaeology Collective and the Society of Black Archaeologists, with special help from Dr. Sarah Gonzalez, Dr. Justin Donovan, and Dr. Ayana Fluellen. Special thanks also to Dr. Chip Colwell and the production team at Sapiens, the Wenagren Foundation for Anthropological Research, and House of Pod. This episode was made possible by financial support from the Andrew Fisk Memorial Center for Archaeological Research at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. We want to thank our panelists for leading our conversation today. Gabby Omoni-Hardeman, Eric Masariegos, and Marianne Rageb. Thanks also to the member organizations of the Archaeology Center's Coalition for supporting Sapiens Talkback. You can find more information about their work at archaeologycoalition.org. Radio Siams is a member of the American Anthropological Association's podcast library. This episode was produced at Cornell University by Adam Smith, with Olivia Graves as our engineer and Rebecca Gerdes as our production assistant. Cornell University is located on the traditional homelands of the Gaia the Cayuga Nation. The Gaia are members of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, an alliance of six sovereign nations with a historic and contemporary presence on this land. The Confederacy precedes the establishment of Cornell University, New York State, and the United States of America. We acknowledge the painful history of Gaia dispossession and honor the ongoing connection of Gaia people, past and present, to these lands and waters. And we encourage you to investigate the indigenous histories and living communities connected to the places that you occupy. Be sure to tune in next week for the next episode in the Sapiens podcast series, Slavery, Sustenance and Resistance. And then the following week, check back in with us here at Sapiens Talk Back, when our guest will be Professor Peggy Brunash from the University of Glasgow and Dr. Kelly Dietz, Director of Education, Programming and Visitor Engagement at Stratford Hall Plantation in Virginia. I'm Anna Fancher-Whittemore. And I'm Alex Simons. Thanks for listening.